and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Bo Phillips, Executive Director of U.S. Made and a partner at Reset Public Affairs. We will discuss his advocacy work in relation to patent reform. So welcome to the show, Bo. Thanks, Brian. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. This is a, a, a real pleasure. Um, this is probably a little non-traditional uh, for, for folks who listen to your podcast, as I am neither a law professor uh, or scholar by any means. And um, for that matter, I'm, I'm not even a lawyer. Um, I, am, I am very fortunate, though. I have the opportunity to work with some of the, the finest lawyers and law professors in the antitrust and intellectual property law world, um, many of which are obviously you know, overlapping those two universe. And um, uh, it's a, a function of the work I do for the last 20 years or so. I've worked on most of the uh, larger antitrust investigations and mergers going all the way back to the, the DOJ versus Microsoft case, which obviously is probably the, the biggest and, and most interesting antitrust case, uh, well, certainly of modern times. We, we may be changing that very soon with all the, the look-sees at, at some of the tech companies going on now. But at least until this moment, U.S. Microsoft was uh, was certainly you know the biggest uh, in recent memory. Um, I worked on, had the pleasure of working on the, the FTC investigation uh, of IBM and Intel and Google. Uh, previously, um, I worked on the Justice Department's attempt to uh, block Oracle's hostile acquisition of PeopleSoft, the um, uh, DirecTV EchoStar merger and the SiriusXM merger, uh, and most recently I had a chance to work on the uh, Cigna Express Scripts merger. So a lot of really interesting uh, uh, antitrust uh, background uh, that I've had to do over two decades. On the patent side of things, though, which is um, what we're going to talk about today, uh, I spent about a decade uh, or so working to pass legislation like the America Invents Act uh, and supporting some of the legal teams around a few of the um, uh, presidential Supreme Court cases of the last decade or so, like uh, the oil states case and the um, uh, Kyozo uh, uh, speed test uh, speed case uh, versus lightning speed. Um, uh, and I had a chance to work on, on passing the Patent Act in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't pass its counterpart, um, uh, but the America Invents Act was was a, a, uh, a good experience uh, when we passed that in 2011. Um, none of that, though, I guess really tells you what I, I do. Um, the answer to your question is I, I have the fun job. Um, the lawyers work very hard, uh, but I have the fun job of kind of creating the, the atmosphere and the political environment um, that makes it most likely that, that patent quality improvement measures can pass, can go forward, um, whether it means passing a new law or a new regulation uh, or by advancing a court case. And that, that may be as simple as just helping you know, people and policymakers understand the, the importance of high-quality patents or the damage that uh, vague, low-quality patents can do, whether it's to startups or to manufacturers uh, or to the, the economy as a, as a whole. Um, it's odd to, to, to be on with you and talk about this because my, my work is traditionally kind of done behind the, the curtain. And I, I don't think in 20 years of doing this kind of work, I've, I've actually sort of come out and been on a podcast or been in the media or anything like that um, and talk about it. But there's just so much going on right now in the in the patent policy world uh, that it seems the right time to sort of you know come out and, and talk about it a little bit. Well, I wonder if you could say a little something about the relationship between your work in antitrust policy and your work in patent policy. So how did you end up bringing the two together or sort of what do you see as the relationship between the two uh, and sort of 
are, are there crossovers in terms of the policy concerns that clients are bringing to you in terms of thinking about policy making in both of those areas? So in, in my case, you would think there would be more, right? And and on probably you know one side of the the proverbial fence, um, because like everything else, you know, patent pol- in patent policy, there there are you know sort of two sides going at it, and there the twain shall meet. And and on one side, there is sort of this effort, especially around standard essential patents, to um, try to make the case that you know intellectual property should trump antitrust law. Um, but without exception, you know, there isn't a tremendous amount of overlap. Obviously, all not all, many of the the uh, scholars who are are working on IP cases also are you know working on on antitrust and vice versa. Um, but there, at least from, from a policy standpoint, especially I'm, I'm located in DC, Washington DC, and so I work on a lot of um, uh, you know legislative initiatives uh, before the Congress. Uh, as well as some things in front of the PTO, but, but mostly in Congress and then some Supreme Court cases. And really, there is more of a separation than I, I would have thought there would be. Your question is is, is well-founded, but, but, but yet it does seem there's a, a greater amount of distinction than you would think there would be in that, um, uh, you know, sort of on one side of, of the world, there are, you know, kind of merger teams at the Department of Justice who are doing merger reviews and uh, investigative people at the you know, antitrust division who are looking at, say, the Googles of the world and the Facebooks of the world um, uh, at the FTC. And then there are different people who are you know, working on the um, IP side of things. And, and there's a lot of separation between the two. And it just is odd and it is surprising because you would think there'd be a lot more, a lot more crossover than there is. So, Bo, you mentioned that you worked on the America Invents Act, which was really the most significant uh, amendment uh, or, or change to the Patent Act in, in quite some time. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that experience, like sort of what were your clients most concerned about and how did you work on crafting the narrative to explain what they wanted and why they wanted it? And like, to what extent did you find that you ended up having success in reaching lawmakers in kind of passing a bill that looked like what you wanted it to? Sure. So um, you're right. It, it, the American Advance Act was by far the most significant, uh, uh, you know, we've had law in 52 years. Um, d- despite that, uh, you know, and everybody certainly uh, does talk about it in that, in that way, there have been dozens, dozens of um, small revisions to patent law passed through Congress, uh, not just little regulatory changes, but actually uh, law uh, has been passed um, uh, over the course of, of those decades um, in patent law uh, 35 times, I believe, before we, we actually uh, uh, were able to pass the American Vents Act. Almost every one of those were to the benefit of uh, brand name pharma companies. Uh, small changes and large changes. Um, certainly none of them as big as the American Invents Act. Uh, but there, there have been lots of changes and they all seem to benefit one side. Uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, the uh, fight that was going on that led up to that was uh, predominantly around um, a handful of issues, uh, uh, the way in which damages were being calculated, um, 
in patent courts uh, or in federal court around around patent cases, um, uh, and, and a handful of other uh, issues like um, automatic injunctions, uh, uh, big issues basically uh, is is the bottom line. And um, the tech industry, uh, some of the the retailers, um, really had some some big goals. Um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry uh, and um, some of the royalty company, you know, companies that make their income uh, uh, through royalties, uh, as well as the patent bar, had also some very big goals. The, the, the part of the problem with um, fighting over um, you know patent issues in front of Congress is that the the natural um, point of view of a member of Congress, when when friends, if you will, on both sides come to you and say, "I want your help. I have a problem," is to tell them, "Well, why don't you go in the corner and work it out." And with many, many issues, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And, and unfortunately, uh, with patent law, there, there sort of is no middle ground. Um, they're, they're, the things that one side wants are unfortunately diametrically opposed in almost all cases from the things the other side wants. You sort of have to pick a winner and a loser. And no member of Congress ever wants to pick a winner and a loser. And with all, you know, in, in all fairness, who wants to take a side in a fight between what is seen as the rich and the wealthy, right? Um, uh, you know, rich tech companies versus wealthy pharmaceutical companies is kind of the way a lot of uh, people um, were looking at it. Uh, and so uh, in the end, uh, to, to answer one of your questions, it, it was not hard to, you know, put uh, both sides to put their point of view in front of Congress. Uh, members were members of Congress were very open to hearing, um, you know, uh, what Every side, had, each side had to say. There was a lot of very good information. The Supreme Court had started uh, a series of what would be 10 or 11 presidential rulings, every one of them, 9-0, uh, essentially moving towards, um, you know, the uh, point of view that the patent system had become out of skew um, in that patents had become for lack of a better way to, to say it, too strong, if you will, that patent quality had become um, too degraded and that that degradation had uh, begun having an effect on the legal system that was deleterious. Um, and uh, the middle ground that Congress found essentially was to uh, create, uh, among other things, a series of post-grant review uh, processes in the America Invents Act, which in the end, enjoyed pretty wide bipartisan support. The Americans Events Act passed the House and the Senate um, with support of majority of Republicans and Democrats. Uh, even uh, you know, pharma and bio and, and uh, the patent bar and others who today are not happy with the IPR process uh, were supportive of the passage of the, the bill. And um, uh, the main feature of the act um, was uh, the creation of the Interparties Review. It's essentially a post-grant review that's conducted by um, what's called a Patent Trials and Appeal Board, uh, which is an administrative board within the Patent and Trademark Office. And this is essentially a board of usually three highly skilled patent judges. Um, uh, and it looks and feels a lot like uh, what you might find uh, in a court. Um uh, it looks and feels a lot like a uh, trial, uh, but it is uh, uh, different uh, than a trial in um, several ways. Um, it it um, 
uses a different set of standards um, and it is uh, beneficial. Um, uh, we certainly feel, uh, US made certainly feels uh, in that it has a couple of unique benefits. In a, um, in a partners review, uh, instead of having a federal judge who may not be you know, skilled in patent law, um, you have a, a essentially a panel of subject matter experts and patent law experts um, uh, who are you know reviewing the validity of the patent, uh, and uh, you have a much more streamlined and much less expensive process. Uh, the process uh, takes no more than eighteen months. Uh, the first six months of that process, the the uh, review panel decides whether or not. Uh, there will even be a review, whether the, the petition for uh, the IPR will even be instituted or not. They institute about 65% of the petitions. Uh, they choose not to institute um, uh, about, well, let me, let me give you the numbers for, for last year. That'll give a better sense. Uh, last year, there were about um, uh, 1,400 uh, petitions filed uh, for um, uh, IPRs, 859 of them. Uh, were allowed to um, be reviewed, 577 were denied. Um, and so those that were denied, they got their notice within six months uh, that they were denied, and that was the end of it. Uh, the ones that, that go forward, uh, that takes about 12 months. Uh, so the whole process takes 18 months at the longest. Obviously, a, a trial can drag on, as everyone knows, for you know five years, seven years, depends on the appeals process. Um, An IPR tends to cost somewhere between a quarter of a million and a million dollars, by no means um, inexpensive, uh, but certainly far less expensive than a, a patent of infringement trial in a federal court, which on average is three to five million dollars. Um, so the process is much more streamlined, uh, obviously, and it's held um, uh, you know, in front of a panel of, of experts. Um, it's also uh, done um, to only you know, very few patents, of course. Um, with a total of, of 859 petitions that, that you know, went forward out of, um, I want to say, what, 335 patent applications granted in 2018, um, that, that represents, I think, about a quarter of 1% of all the patents granted uh, in 2018 that were subject to an IPR. It's a, a pretty minuscule number. Um, a former federal uh, circuit court judge called IPRs the killing fields for patents once. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty hyperbolic claim when we're talking about 859 petitions. Um, the PTAB, uh, uh, through the IPR process, um, canceled some or all of the patent claims, um, uh, or the patent owner conceded that the claims were invalid in about 80% uh, of the IPRs uh, in 2018. Uh, it's a pretty high cancellation rate. Um, uh, but it also shows that, that these were probably uh, not necessarily patents that should have gotten through the process. Um, and when you have 338 patents, 338,000 patents going through the process, that's not a, that's not a bad number. It tells us that our examiners, uh, patent examiners, um, and there's only about 8,500 of them, and they have on average 19 hours to review every patent, which is not nearly enough, are doing a pretty good job. Uh, but that, you know, some bad patents slip through. Um, the, the problem is that a bad patent can just do a tremendous amount of damage uh, to, you know, economic damage, damage to the, you know, uh, small businesses or large businesses that it's used against. Um, the IPR process is doing a pretty good job of weeding out those few bad patents. And it, it's doing so at a much low, lower cost and much faster than district court uh, litigation is. Um, and finally, it's working, uh, it seems, uh, pretty well. The federal circuit 
2018 um, reported that only 11% of appeals from the PTAB were reversed. Uh, that's a pretty good record. It's slightly better than federal courts for patent cases. Um, it's not an apples to apples comparison, of course, uh, and it shouldn't be, but, but it's, it's a statistic that demonstrates, uh, demonstrates pardon me, that IPR has been pretty successful in weeding out um, predominantly uh, bad patents. It's hard to imagine a good, valid uh, patent um, would go through the process, get instituted, have an IPR uh, hearing, get invalidated, go to the federal circuit and still get invalidated if it were actually a, uh, a, good, uh, a good patent. Um, it's, it's a one and done process. Uh, so it's pretty fair person who files district court action, uh, challenging the validity of a patent can't file an IPR as well. They only get one bite at the apple, uh, and the decisions are binding, uh, on the petitioners. Uh, if a patent is upheld at IPR, uh, the petitioner can't, you know, go assert validity, invalidity in a district court uh, on any grounds that could have been asserted in the, in the IPR. So, um, uh, you know, it, it, we think the, the American Vents Act created a, a, a pretty good system. Um, you know, in, in our case, we were able to get to the members of, of Congress, get to their staff. Um, this was, because of the complicated nature of it, in a sense, a um, what you'd call, I guess, a, a committee-only sort of thing, right? So you have the Judiciary Committee in, in the Congress, in the House, and the Senate. Um, they worked very, very hard on this. Um, the leadership of the House and Senate you know, took an interest and worked very, very hard on this. Um, but getting the, you know, literally hundreds of other members to really learn all of these issues in great depth um, was much harder uh, and, and took a, a great deal of um, bringing down to a, a, a level of understanding that was much more approachable. Um, and so the work that, that I try to do um, on this stuff, you know, Brian, is, is um, uh you know, it's pretty diverse and it's, it's, I'm not a lobbyist, of course, but um, it's, you know, creating sort of approachable things like digital advertising that explains these very complex things in kind of a, um, a way in which uh, the layman can understand it. Because even in Congress, I mean, I, I worked in Congress for many years. These are very smart people. They're very well educated. They're not all lawyers. Um, they want to understand what it is they're, they're working on, what it is they're asking their member of Congress, their boss to vote on before they you know, possibly give them a recommendation whether to vote for or against something. Um, and for a complicated issue like patent law or the American Vents Act, you know, it's, sort of fall, it's incumbent on the people who are advocating for these things to you know, explain it to them, tell it to them, uh, sell it to them, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, in a way in which um, uh, it's understandable. Um, you know, and, and certainly not insulting, right? You, I, what you can't hear, you, you, the words that will never come out of my mouth are, and dumb it down, because that's absolutely not what we do. And it's not what we would do. Um, and it, it, it wouldn't do any good. Because um, while these are complicated issues, these are very, very smart people. Um, it just needs to be um, delivered to them in a way in their seven day a week, 16 hour a day day uh, with 20 other things going on in which they can receive it and distill it for their members of Congress, for their bosses. Well, so I understand that there is a move going on right now to sort of roll back, cabin, or maybe even eliminate to some degree the inter-partis review process. I wonder if you could talk a little 
bit about sort of what the objections being raised to IPR are and sort of who's making these objections and why? Why do they think there's a problem? What do they want to change? And and why do you think that they're wrong? So there are. um, You're absolutely right. Uh, There are um, essentially, there's essentially one piece of legislation that speaks directly to that. And then another piece of legislation that will be dropped shortly on the issue of patentability. Um, however, on IPR, um, uh, senators um, and House members uh, have dropped identical bills called the Stronger Patents Act. Uh, the bill would create a uh, bright line rule uh, that only one IPR petition uh, could ever be filed against a patent, uh, regardless of how many businesses uh, that patent owner uh, sued or threatened to sue uh, with that patent. Uh, this is an unnecessary restriction uh, that is based on unfounded complaints of multiple petitions being used to harass patent holders. Uh, so, if for, the, for instance, if an IPR was filed against a single claim in a patent with 20 claims to it, uh, a later IPR could not be filed against that patent based on a finding of new prior art against a completely unrelated claim within the patent. Um, you could, we literally asked at a hearing, the sponsor of the, the, of the bill this, uh, if you're a patent holder uh, and this bill passes, could you literally have a friend run and file a petition uh, against your patent um, that sounded reasonable so that your patent could never be you know, an IPR petition against your patent uh, so that your patent could never be challenged again? You know, essentially challenge your own patent uh, through a proxy uh, to protect it from a future IPR. And the answer was essentially yes. Um, it... Um, essentially makes IPR uh, in a number of ways, that's just one, worthless. Um, and uh, that's one of the two things that, that the bill does. The other thing is that it reverses, um, overturns the Supreme Court's uh, eBay versus Merck Exchange uh, decision, which was a 9-0 uh, decision that was presidential, and that ended automatic injunctions in patent infringement cases. Uh, essentially, if, if you were found um, by a... Uh, uh, district court to have infringed, uh, especially in cases brought by uh, non-practicing entities, what some people call patent trolls, uh, uh, typically there would be an automatic injunction and you would be unable to continue to operate your business. Uh, in, in these cases, uh, especially with, with smaller businesses, uh, there, there became a perverse incentive to settle even the weakest cases uh, if there was a threat of an automatic injunction. So if a uh, non-practicing entity, you know, approached you and said, I'm going to sue you for patent infringement, regardless of the quality of the, the, the patent or the reason for which you were being sued. Um, if you knew you faced the threat of a potential automatic injunction, um, you, you potentially would settle uh, regardless. Um, the Stronger Patents Act um, essentially overturns uh, the eBay decision and, and reinstitutes automatic injunctions. Uh, and and um, we think that's a terrible idea. Um, Supreme Court uh, decision was was a decade ago, over a decade ago at this point, I believe. Um, it's worked very well, um, and and we think it should remain in place. The um, to the why, um, this just there, there are two schools of thought. Um, the people who are um, supporting it um, are you know brand name pharmaceutical companies. Uh, brand name biopharmaceutical companies, so the people that make uh, Humira, uh, for instance, um, uh, uh, the patent bar, uh, 
companies that, that make their income through royalty and licensing, uh, like Qualcomm. Um, uh, and uh, I think we would argue that, you know, the, the, the brand name drug companies uh, obviously, uh, you know, want uh, the IPRs overturned uh, or IPRs done away with because a lot of the um, generic drug companies use IPRs to uh, pick away at the patent thickets that um, branded drug companies have used to um, uh, to basically stave off uh, the end of their uh, monopolies, uh, which were supposed to end years ago, uh, and uh, keep them from getting generic entry into the market. Um, the best example of this is probably um, uh, AbbVie, uh, the drug company that makes the most profitable drug in history, Humira. Uh, Humira uh, had a patent that ended in 2014. You can buy generic Humira in Europe right now, um, but it has found a way to uh, build a, a thicket of 230, 43 patents uh, lasting till 2034 around itself um, here in the United States. Patents for things like the labeling on its box. Uh, and uh, so it will continue to charge the brand name uh, non, and you know, non-generic monopoly rent uh, for its product. Um, now, facing lawsuits uh, for its behavior, there have been agreements, generic Humera will enter the US market in 2023, uh, but every minute uh, uh, since 2014 uh, that they keep uh, generics from patients is worth tens of billions of dollars uh, to American uh, patients that, that should be saving and receiving generics like their European counterparts. Uh, and that's just one drug, uh, one drug company. And that's a huge incentive uh, to um, keep IPRs um, uh, basically in a bottle, uh, overturn uh, that portion of the AIA. Um, the second um, piece of legislation that's pending, uh, hasn't dropped yet, uh, is expected in the coming days, um, is a bill that would um, uh, repeal parts of Section 101 of the Patent Act. Uh, this affects uh, what's called patentability or what can and can't be patented. It would wipe out 150 years of Supreme Court rulings about what is actually patentable and greatly widen the definition of what can be patented and overturn the recent Alice decision from the Supreme Court, another unanimous decision, um, which upheld what had long under the law been patentable under Section 101. Um, and it would allow abstract ideas like business methods, uh, which you know cannot be patented, to once again uh, be patented. Um, so we think those are, those are problems. Um, I'm building uh, this coalition of manufacturers uh, who are working on these issues. There are... Um, Main street companies like um, retailers, coffee shops, gas station owners, uh, home builders, uh, realtors. Uh, there are high tech companies uh, that believe this is a, an issue. This is a problem. Obviously, generic drug companies uh, who are using these tools to try and get generic drugs, uh, low cost generic drugs, into the market. Um, and and our work, my work in particular, is about trying to help educate uh, people uh, about these patent quality issues. Low quality patents are. Um, what are being used to, to uh, keep generic drugs out of the market, to harm manufacturers and other businesses. Um, sometimes, you know, when, when we talk about how to educate people, we talk about 
um, the public. But with patent issues, like many complex legal issues, uh, you know, I'm obviously talking about a small, very exclusive audience, um, like the universe of people I've mentioned in, in Congress, maybe at the PTO, uh, in the courts. And that's a universe that measures in, you know, the hundreds or the low thousands. Um, obviously, the people at the PTO are experts on these issues. Um, and um, so, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, some of these some of these folks uh, in Congress, for instance, um, and I don't mean this to sound flip at all, don't necessarily care about patent policy. Um, and they don't want to have to care about patent policy, right? They have a hundred other things that they care about, um, healthcare, immigration, education, and our challenge is to try to way to hopefully make them uh, care and, and uh, convince them this dry, technical, seemingly boring stuff actually is really important to the things that they do care about. Um, and then second, um, uh, once we get their reluctant attention for a moment, uh, how do we explain these very complicated issues of patent quality in a simple, approachable, but persuasive way? Um, especially because someone else is, is trying to make the case in the exact opposite direction. So, so Bo, uh, a, a significant part of the audience for this podcast is is legal scholars, and I know that you work with legal scholars in the course of your advocacy projects. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, sort of how you think about the role of legal scholars in relation to these kinds of uh, policy reform projects, and sort of what your experiences working with legal scholars have been like. Sure. Uh, it, it's, I don't mean to sound, um, uh, you know, wide eyed, uh, but one of the singular joys of being able to do this work is being able to work with really, really smart people. Um, and, and that's both in, in, uh, the IP world, the antitrust world, and frankly, in a couple of other areas of the law that, that have nothing to do with these two, um, areas that, that, um, I've had the opportunity to work with in, in over the last 20, 25 years. Uh, and when you you know get to sit um, either in person or maybe on the phone or in a panel with a really really smart lawyer um, and just either watch them work or rare opportunity to sit at the table and actually work with them it, it's just a joy and uh, in this area um, there I've had the opportunity to work with a few dozen uh, uh, IP lawyers uh, IP scholars uh, professors law professors. Uh, who have really, um, you know, <laughs> I, I don't, I almost don't want to like admit it because um, I've never said it to them, but it just taught me a tremendous amount. I guess that's their job, right? They're, they're law professors. Uh, uh, but uh, by virtue of, um, you know, whether they were writing a white paper for one of my clients or uh, talking at a conference that we had set up or uh, visiting uh, Capitol Hill uh, to participate in, in some sort of a seminar uh, the um, wisdom, and, and sometimes it's just simple wisdom. You, you listen to what they say, and you're like, "Wow, why didn't, why didn't we think of that? That's so simple." Like, or they they go into court at uh, the federal circuit, or even in the Supreme Court, and they lay out a case, and it just seems like, "Oh, wow, everyone should have thought of that." That is just simple, but brilliantly simple. But it's brilliant. Uh, it just is um, one of the few overwhelming uh, pleasures about doing this work. Because uh, a lot, a lot of this work is kind of it's drudgery. Um, because you um, could could work on this stuff for ten years, fifteen years. In the last case of the IAA, uh, it was fifty two years since since anyone had passed a bill, and it could be fifty two years before we pass another bill. 
So uh, it's a little a little disheartening to do the work and, and worry that you'll never actually get anything done. So the little joys are really important. And and at least for me, um, the little joys are you know spending time. And, and I'm not going to name names. I, I probably actually could just throw out a few for fun. But I, the little joys are you know when I get ten or fifteen minutes on the phone uh, or uh, in a video conference uh, with uh, people who. Um, you know, otherwise are speaking usually to a thousand people or speaking to the Supreme Court or speaking to the federal circuit. Uh, and I get them one-on-one -on -one, or I get them, you know, with just four or five or six other people and actually have the chance to talk to them or ask them my own questions and engage with them in a very direct way. Uh, and that's, you know, just a, just a real pleasure uh, for the ones, you know, that uh, do know me from a hole in the wall. Mm. Well, so Bo, I know you've been involved in this patent policy reform area for a long time and are really familiar with all the players involved and sort of how these processes work. And I, and I got to say, a lot of people in the patent scholarship community seem pretty concerned about some of these efforts, these legislative proposals to roll back interpartisan review to uh, to amend <laughs> Section 101 to change the scope of patentable subject matter. I, I just wonder if you have any insight from kind of an insider's perspective on sort of how viable you think these proposals are and how likely it is that they are to move forward and and actually get enacted. So I, I am um, gravely concerned about the uh, likelihood of a change concerning Section 101 of the Patent Act, which is the legislation that is yet to be introduced. Um, I think that um, that has a genuine possibility of passing during this Congress between now and the end of, of 2020. Uh, I would say there is at minimum a 50-50 chance that the Stronger Patents Act, uh, which is the bill that that um, would make IPR um, unworkable uh, and overturn the eBay decision uh, could pass uh, into law. I think there is a sense that it, it certainly could not pass as a standalone bill, and that is lulling people into a false sense of complacency that it won't pass uh, this Congress. And, and I agree, it won't pass as a standalone bill. However, I am concerned that uh, it, it will, or the worst parts of it, will be essentially um, stuffed to a must-pass bill uh, coming out of the Judiciary Committee, like some sort of a um, uh, drug price bill um, in the dead of night, which is how a lot of bad things happen. Um, and that uh, because we've all sort of become convinced, oh, the standalone Stronger Patents Act won't pass, that um, uh, we don't have to worry. And and that's the concern I have about the IPR bill. The um, uh, People who are committed to undoing IPR are deeply, deeply committed. They are spending a lot more resources than folks I work with are spending. Their CEOs are getting on their private planes and coming to Washington a lot more often than the CEOs that I work with. There's a sense of commitment there. I hate to say that out loud. There's a sense of commitment there that is uh, very genuine and deeply disturbing. And so I do worry um, that um, there is a, at least a 50-50 chance that we're looking at the passage of some portion of the IPR uh, bill. Um, during this Congress. Mm -hmm. Well, on that sobering note, Bo, um, I just want to say thanks so much. This has been like a fascinating and really informative conversation for me about what patent policy advocacy actually looks like on the ground and how the professionals who do it think about their work. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. This has really been a pleasure. I, 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 I appreciate it.
How do you know the value of a patent? Great question. If you want to have a monopoly, a patent would be very valuable if it gives you the right to stop your competitors from knocking off your product. In that case, you could place a high value on your patent. Patents can be analogous to a border you are creating. If the it will be easy to cross. If the border is broad, it will be hard to cross. Broad patents are definitely preferable over narrow ones because with a broad patent, your competition will need your help to cross the border. With a broad patent, it's like being a troll at a bridge collecting money to pass. All right, how do I get a patent? The first step is for a patent attorney to prepare a patent application and file it with the Patent and Trademark Office in Washington, D.C. A patent application is an offer to the government to exchange a benefit to society. The patent application must then be negotiated with the patent examiner. This negotiation process is called prosecution and can take several years. Years? Yes, years. 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 After the prosecution is completed and the patent is granted, the inventor has a contract with the government. Because the invention has met the patentability requirements, the inventor now gets a monopoly on the invention. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. Let's go. Uh, how much is this going to cost? Before you get too far ahead of yourself, we need to determine if your invention has met all of the patentability requirements. Before filing an application, ask whether certain time limits have been strictly observed. The invention is novel and non-obvious. A way to make the invention work is described. Okay, so the first requirement is that certain time limits must be observed. In the patent profession, we refer to these time limits as bargains. So let's learn about bargains. You have the most beautiful blue eyes I've ever seen. Well, they're brown, but that's okay. Let's get out of here. No, no, not that kind of bargain. We don't mean sleazy Bard Ape. Sorry for digression. What we meant was that a Bard Ape is a point in time after which you can no longer apply for a patent. You lose your opportunity to play Monopoly. It's the date after which the buzzer sounds and you are out of the game. It's the date after which, even if you are close, you get no cigar. It's the bar date. It's the worst kind of patent tragedy. And the worst part about bar dates is that inventors and business people create their own. That is, by their own actions and inactions, they cause dates preclude their even being allowed to apply for patent protection. Do you mean we could have already done something that would prevent us from ever on the wheel? 
That's right. What is it that we were not supposed to do? There are three ways you can trigger a bar date. A bar date is triggered when a sufficient description of the invention is published, when there is an offer of the invention for sale, when there is public disclosure of the invention.